Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 8 through to 18. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. This is the word of God. The book of Hebrews has always been rather enigmatic because we don't know who wrote it. Some of the very old versions of the King James Bible have got it attributed to Paul, but the truth is we've no idea who wrote this letter. We don't know where it was written. We don't know anything about the date. All we can be reasonably certain is that when the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, if the letter was written with the knowledge of that, surely something of it would have been there in the letter. But there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. Who was it written to? Well, the content tells us that the writer was thinking of Jewish Christians who maybe 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion were thinking, what have I lost? in my Jewishness? Have I done the right thing in becoming a Christian? They were looking back, some of them, and fondly remembering the synagogue and Jerusalem and the temple and were in a quandary. Where is the promise of his coming? It's a long time coming where we write to leave our Jewishness. A few years ago, there was a film made of Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. And when the producers and directors were casting their mind round to who they might get to play in it, I've got this picture of one certainty and two that I can't quite make my mind up about. The two that I can't make my mind up about was firstly Roy Kinnear who often plays the bumbling fool, but in playing the bumbling fool, he often steals the show from all the big actors round about him. 
And the second name that I'm not quite sure about, but I think I have it right, is Rab C. Nesbitt. Who would have chosen Gregor Fisher to be in a Shakespeare play? But who to take the lead of Shylock? And they chose Al Pacino, an actor more known for his mafia and gangster roles. But it was an inspired choice. Right at the end, Pacino seems to sum up what these Jewish Christians were thinking about. What have I given up? He's lost the argument for the pound of flesh. And he's been told to break his ties with his Jewish people. And the very end scene, and Pacino captures it. He's at one side of the road and he's looking across the street to the synagogue and looking at all his Jewish friends going in and he's lost that fellowship no words are spoken but on Pacino's face how an actor can contrade desolation of what I've lost on his face as he stands and looks over the street at his Jewish friends going into the synagogue he's lost it all and Hebrews was written to Jewish people who were thinking, have I lost it all? Could I go back? Could I go back? The writer, we know nothing about, but all we can say is that he's intimately knowledgeable about all Jewish life and customs. He's intimately knowledgeable with synagogue, instrumentally, intimately knowledgeable about the temple and sacrifice. He knows all about the priesthood and he's writing out of that context back to Jewish Christians. He takes a verse from the Psalms and he applies it to Jesus. He so often takes Old Testament verses. He takes that verse I take no delight in sacrifice or burnt offerings. And he uses that to bolster his argument. I've come to do your will. He takes verses time and time again out of the Old Testament. He sees the finality brought about by Jesus on the cross of Calvary, that there's no need for any more animal sacrifice. He says Jesus' death on Calvary was a once for all, never to be repeated sacrifice. He reminds us of the priesthood day after day involved in animal bloodshed and taking Jesus' death round about the age of 30, 33, and knowing that the temple had not been demolished all these years after Jesus was crucified, right up to the day that the Romans destroyed the temple, animals were being sacrificed here. Useless bloodshed for the final sacrifice had been accomplished. Thousands and thousands of bulls and goats and sheep and doves 
sacrificed needlessly because the once for all sacrifice had been accomplished. But he uses that word, but, but. He says, but, by a single sacrifice for sin, the temple system is totally outmoded. There's a new covenant. The old covenant, the mosaic, to the people of Israel, of law after law after law and sacrifice was finished. The single sacrifice completes it all. There's no more necessary for it. God says, I put my law in their hearts and they'll know in their spirit how to worship me in spirit and truth. There's not any more need for sin offerings. In the temple, as you approached it, you went into the place known as the place of the Gentiles, the place that Jesus upturned tables and set the whole place aflame. My house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Well, we could go there as Gentiles. We could go into that place and see what was happening. But there was a door up there, a gate up there. We had no right to go through. That was the court of the Jews. Jews could go in there, could walk through. But beyond that was another place into the most holy. And when a priest, the high priest, went in there once in the year to make that wonderful sacrifice, to offer precious blood sprinkled, sprinkled, The Bible tells us in those two places there was no place for sitting down. No place for sitting down. But it says of Jesus when he had accomplished this he sat down at the right hand of his father. He sat down. The sitting down was another mark that it's finished. His work is finished, it's completed. It's finished. Paul makes much of the love of God towards sinners. He talks about its length, its breadth, its height, its depth. And on Calvary's cross, that length and breadth and height and depth of God was shown towards us. One writer puts it this way. For breath, for breadth, it is immensity. For length, it is eternity. For depth, it is profundity. And for height, the love of God is infinity. When he finished, he sat down. An old hymn writer puts it this way. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give my guilty conscience peace or take away its stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than thee. When he finished, he sat down. 